how do you like to be introduced? When someone you know introduces you to someone you don't, they always make a connection, right? Or at least you hope they do. They don't just say, here's Kyle. Right? There's always some relational connection that they make, typically, and it depends on the, what the relationship is. So a person introducing me, they might say, this is Kyle, Jennifer's husband. That's always the best way for me to be introduced. That gives me the most credibility. Or this is, this is Kyle, this is Mason and Caleb's dad. Or this is Kyle, my pastor. Or this is Kyle, my buddy from college, right? Anytime somebody introduces you, typically they make some form of connection according to how the relationship is structured, right? Or how that other person might be able to connect better with you, something they might know about you. But I'm willing to bet nobody has ever introduced you fully. This is Kyle, and let me tell you every single thing about him and everything he's ever done, right? Nobody, nobody's ever done that for you or for me. For one, because it would take forever. It would take all day. But then secondly, I'm not sure anybody really knows you that well, well enough to introduce you fully. That they know every single thing about you, everything you've ever done, every, every thought you've ever had, every, everything about you. No, I'm not sure anybody knows you that well to be able to introduce you that well. And that's why we connect each other in only parts. You know, like this is, this is Tom. He, he, we, we had college algebra together. This is Sherry. Sherry married my cousin and they live down in Pontotoc. You know, this is Jim. Jim's a great guitar player. We take little parts of people and help make connections because we don't really know anybody fully, truly and fully. Well, the Apostle Paul, when he writes in Colossians 1, he does something really interesting here. He reintroduces Jesus to us. I mean, that's in essence what he's doing, that Paul is speaking to a church full of Christians. These are people who know Jesus. They have heard the gospel. They've received the gospel. They trust Jesus for their salvation. They're walking as his disciples. But Paul is concerned right here that they don't really know Jesus fully. They know him in part, and they know enough about him, of course, to be his disciples, but Paul wants these people in Colossae, and of course he wants us as the church, he wants us to know Jesus more. He wants us to know Jesus as fully as we possibly can, not only in part. Paul, if he wanted to talk about Jesus, he could say something to the effect of, Jesus was born of a virgin. He grew up in Nazareth. He began his public ministry around the age of 30. He was a rabbi. He performed miracles. He was a prophet. He, was, you know, he could go through the list of who Jesus was on earth and his accomplishments, but Paul doesn't do that here because he wants a fuller, greater, and more cosmic understanding of Jesus to rest in our hearts. And so this is one of what we just read a minute ago. This is one of the most incredible portraits of Christ in the entire Bible. This is one of the mountaintop scriptures. If you want to know Jesus in terms of his divinity, just how wonderful and, and massive and glorious he is. You might go to John chapter 1. You might go to Hebrews chapter 1. You might go to Philippians chapter 2. But you, right here, you're going you're gonna to turn to Colossians 1, and you're going to get a picture of Jesus that is beyond us. And I'm not sure that a 30-minute sermon can do it justice, but we're going to try. We're going to try, okay? This is high-level stuff. And the point, I think, though, is, is pretty simple. What Paul wants us to see, if you know Jesus, then you know God. To know Jesus is to know God in all of his glory and power. We find it in Christ. And so look with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul has just said, we looked at this last week, that we have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, 
because of what he's done for us. And now he's going to tell us just what that means to be in Christ. Look at this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. When, when we read right here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, very plainly Paul is affirming divinity. Jesus is God. Plain and simple. Jesus is God himself. In John chapter 1, we're told that no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus as God, has explained him to us. Which means that, in a sense, Jesus, because Jesus is God, Jesus has made God visible to us. The God that no one has seen has been seen. We have beheld his glory, John says, as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews chapter 1, we are told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of God's nature, a perfect facsimile. He is God. And so, y'all, any, any human temptation that we might have to lower Jesus, and many people try to do this, to lower Jesus to say, oh, we admire him as a great teacher. We esteem him as a prophet. We, we see him as a great moral example, right? Now, those things are all true, but we lower him in that case to something he's not meant to be, to something he isn't. We're making him simply an exalted man, a good man, when the Bible says, no, he's God. Paul makes no, makes no mistake about it here. He is divine. And Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, there are people who take that phrase right there, the firstborn of all creation, and say, ha, ha, ha. See, Jesus is important, but he's not God. He's the firstborn, meaning he's the first thing God made. So he's important, like an exalted angel, maybe, but you can't say he's God because he's the firstborn. Um, now, that's a false teaching that the Colossians, even far back in their day, that, that's a teaching they would have heard, that the Gnostics believed that there are many angels and there's a hierarchy, and Jesus is in there somewhere. He's important, but he's not God. But y'all, listen, firstborn right here can be confusing to us because we assume that like my firstborn son is named Mason, that that's what that means. But no, firstborn is a statement here of preeminence, of preeminence. It means that in all the universe, Jesus ranks first, that Jesus has no equal. That's what firstborn means in this context. And the proof of that comes next in verse 16. If we're thinking that Jesus was a created being, verse 16 helps us to, to frame that correctly. It says, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So as God, Jesus was never created. He's the creator. Um, and you notice that all, all things, everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible, heavens and earth, everything Jesus has made, it's created by him. And Paul, Paul makes an interesting kind of, he turns these phrases. Everything was made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. There's a totality in view here, that Jesus didn't just serve one peculiar function in his divinity that he created, but then that's it. 
No, everything about what we are, everything we can see and everything we can't see, was created not just by him, but for him. Everything that is, is because of Jesus. And the ultimate goal of everything is for him, to glorify him. He is the end point, the goal of everything, to bring him glory. You see verse 17, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You may have heard that in the children's time. In him all things hold together. Um, there, there was another false teaching, and, and you may not know the, the word, but you're probably familiar with the idea. It's a false teaching called deism. And deism says there is a God, yes, but he's distant and impersonal. This is the God who wound the thing up, but then walked away and left us to ourselves. Deism. But Paul flatly denies that right here as well. There's no such deism. There's no God like that who just created all things, but then walked away. No, because Paul says Jesus didn't just make everything. He sustains it. He holds it all together. Every breath in your lungs, every beat of your heart, every molecule in existence, Jesus holds it together. That is an active, present, ongoing reality. It's not something that happened once upon a time, and now we're left to ourselves. Moment by moment, the entire universe subsists. It holds together because of Jesus. You know, there are um, about seven and a half billion people on the earth right now, Every single one of them made in the image of God, uniquely crafted, knit together in the womb. Jesus holds them together. Even those who don't believe in him, he holds it all together. This is less uh, encouraging news. For every one person, seven and a half billion, for every one person there are 200 million insects. Did you know that? I, can't, I don't even know the number. One, 200 million insects for every one of us in this room. Okay? You may not wish that were the case. But y'all, you think about the uniqueness. This is, this is, Jesus holds it all together. Everything has its place in proper order. It's amazing. The earth, the planet that we are on right now, is moving through space. You know, we orbit around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. Did you know that? The earth, right now, we are moving at 67,000 miles an hour, eight times faster than a speeding bullet. And yet we don't feel it. We'd never know it. And Jesus holds it all together, right? Every single thing, every molecule of this universe has order instead of chaos because Jesus created it and sustains it. He holds it all together. There's nothing in this creation that is outside of his care and concern and power and control. Now, I tell you that to encourage you that if you're, if you're ever feeling hard-pressed, anxious, fearful, worried, struggling in pain, you know, there are a lot of places in the Bible you can turn to for comfort. This may not be one of them in your own estimation, Colossians 1. But I'd encourage you to turn here next time you're concerned about something, next time you're worried, next time you feel pushed up against the wall. That we have a Savior who created, who sustains, who holds in place everything that is by His power. He's greater and more powerful than you can even imagine. And that should be a comfort to us. Um, now, Paul paints this massive picture of Jesus. We just read it. But he reminds us Jesus is more than just creator. And now we may know that already. Yes, he's Savior. But look at what verse 18 says. This is, this is more than just creative power cosmically. Paul says he is also head of the body, the church. 
And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that Jesus himself will come to have first place in everything. So Jesus did more than just create the heavens and the earth. He's created a unique people. Not, not biological people. He's done that too, right? Created in his image. But he's fashioned for himself a community, a family, for his own possession. And we are called the church. We're called his body. He is head of a body. We are an, a living organism attached to, bound up with, Jesus himself. And so when Jesus looks upon the world, he doesn't see this mass of humanity. He looks upon the world in love and says, I'm going to build my church, a people for my own possession, zealous for good works, who will reflect my glory to the watching world. That's us. This, it's, this is not an impersonal God far away. This is a God who knows you and loves you and calls us together and calls us his family, his people. That's amazing. And Paul says, you know, he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that mean? That's a statement of his resurrection. That Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, the third day after he died, in his resurrection, he ushered in an eternal kingdom as the firstborn among many brethren. That means that we follow suit. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again, the first one that he has now formed a kingdom of those who by faith in him will be resurrected ourselves and will spend eternity in glory with him. He's the firstborn among many. That's us. And Jesus, um, because he's the firstborn from the dead, uh, a signal of his supremacy, Paul says, he will come to have first place in everything. That for all eternity, Jesus, place is gonna uh, Jesus Christ is going to have first place next to his name forever. No one can compare with him. No one can usurp him first place. All right. Now let's, let's stop for a second and take a breath. I told y'all this was going to be high level stuff. Uh, this is cosmic stuff Paul's giving to us. Why is he telling us this? Is this just interesting theological trivia? Good stuff to know, good stuff to fill books with. Um, two, two things here I want you to be encouraged by. On one hand, yes, this is theological and it's very important because the Colossians, for example, were being inundated with lots of false teaching. They needed to know who Jesus was. Jesus was not an exalted angel. He's God. Jesus is not one among many options in life. He is supreme. Right? We need to know that too because we need to stand on the truth of who he really is. But y'all, this is more practical, I think, than it probably appears. There's more to this in terms of how you think and how you act and how you live than, than maybe meets the eye. And so let me, I want to encourage you here that what we're reading today can shape and should shape how you, how you live. I read an interesting article this past week about diet, about food. And it was an article written about the, the absolute fascination and obsession and subculture that diet has become. It used to be if you dieted, you were just trying to lose a few pounds. But now it's become an entire subculture. We've got the Cato people, am I pronouncing that right, over here? And we've got the whole 30 people over here. And the person who's writing the article was saying that this, the, the diet craze by itself, of course, it's just, it's fine. It's just food. It's just diet. But for many, many people, it has become not so much about health as it has become a search for meaning, a search for significance. 
And the writer of the article was not a Christian, but was saying that this has become, in a sense, a form of religion for a lot of people. And we have lots of different denominations. Every different diet, fad, and craze is its own denomination. And each one, we think we're right, and they're wrong. Whole 30's wrong. Cato's right, right? And we, we have entire grocery stores devoted to this, and we have an entire online subculture devoted to this, right? This is, this is who we are. And the point of the article was that this is something that, of course, can't be sustained as an object of worship. It's food, And yet when we search for meaning in food, significance in food, the writer of the article said, in the end, we're we're trying to do what everybody else is trying to do. We're trying to cheat death. We're trying to find something to make us last, to to give us some hope in the midst of the despair that we all face, knowing that the end is inevitable. We're using food to try to control the uncontrollable reality of decay. Isn't that interesting? I'm sure there's some truth in that. Uh, I read another article, very different article. It was actually a book review about a new book that's just come out. It's going to be a massive bestseller, targeted in part, at least targeted toward Christians. But the book is basically about, you know, chasing after your dreams and refusing to let anybody get in your way. Don't let anybody hold you down from achieving your dreams. And there's a quote from the book that, that sums up this teaching. You've heard this teaching before. You don't have to read the book to know it. It goes like this. Here's the quote. All that really matters is how bad you want your dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. And one of the big themes of the book is you should not spend your life serving other people because that will get in the way of you and your ambitions. Don't serve anybody who won't serve you back and help you along your way to fulfilling your dreams. Um, Very, very, very popular self-help motivation right there. Two very different articles, one about food, one about chasing your dreams, but they're really doing the exact same thing. They're saying the same thing, that every human being is a worshiper of something that we consider to be ultimate, something in your life, in my life, in every person's life. We take that thing or that person, that relationship, something, and we try to give it an importance that it doesn't deserve. We try to make it something that gives us significance and meaning and value and life, something worth living for. We all do this. Now, in these examples, the two that I just mentioned, we've got diet, we've got food. There's nothing wrong with diet by itself. Just like there's really nothing wrong with personal ambition. Ambition can be a good thing. But when we try to find our sense of meaning there, we take those things and we try to make them ultimate And therefore, we turn them into idols, and we put them in the place of God. At the end of the day, that's what happens. That's what the human heart does. And so it may not be for you health and food or personal ambition, but every single person has this temptation. I I, I preach about this fairly often because I think it's, it's one of the sneakiest, most destructive forms of sin that we all deal with. If I preached against stealing, of course, that's in the Bible. Stealing's wrong, but not everybody in this room may struggle with it. This is different. In the the heart of every human being is the desire, the innate desire, to put all of our weight onto something and make that something ultimate. So if it's not diet or ambition, it could be relationships, it could be a career, it might be good grades or financial security. It could be uh, youth travel ball or video games or binge-watching Netflix. It could be religious activities, church and, and things like that. Anything that we take and try to put all of our weight on, we make it into something it was never meant to be. We're looking to that thing, we're looking to that relationship, rather than we're looking to God. 
We're seeking our meaning where it's never meant to be found. Okay, so Kyle, what you're saying is that instead of that, we should find our meaning in Jesus, right? Yes, but the Apostle Paul is saying more than that. He's saying more than that. Think about what we're reading today. The point of Colossians 1 is not that you and I make Jesus ultimate. The point of Colossians 1 is he is ultimate, period. Or for our purposes today, exclamation point. He is ultimate, regardless of what you think or say or do, regardless of what I think, say, or do. The point is not that in a world of many options, Jesus is the best one. In a world of many good options, make sure to pick the best option, which is Jesus. That's not what Paul's preaching to us here. No, Paul is saying he's not one of many options. He is ultimate. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Jesus is the focal point of the whole universe. He is the focal point of all history. Everything leads to him and points to him and will end with him. He is preeminent in power and glory. Everything that exists exists because of him and ultimately exists for him and his glory. And he is the head of the church. He's the head of us, meaning he's not a great big God far away, but he delights to be your Lord and mine and to call us together as a family. Now, if those things are true, he will come to have first place in everything. And there is no debate. He was first before I was born, and he will be first after I'm gone. I don't make him anything. I don't get to esteem Jesus on a level according to my choosing. He is God whether I worship him or not. Now, if that's true, and of course I believe that, I hope you believe that too, why would we even want to put something in front of him? Why would we even try to make something else in this life significant in the place of God? Why would we chase after lesser idols that we know are temporary when God has established himself as ultimate over our hearts and lives? See, this is not just a statement of what is. Jesus is ultimate. But now, because I believe in him, I, I'm, my whole life is meant to come up under his, uh, his divine grace and glory. He's not going anywhere. I've got to come up under him. That is the choice that we make day by day. I'm going to submit to him and treat him as ultimate. Um, you know, there, there's an interesting uh, point in the book of James. I actually think it helps us maybe connect uh, a little bit better to what we're talking about. I'm going to read this for you. You may be familiar with this from James chapter 4. James uh, gives us a command here, a principle. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Sounds like a good plan. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. <clears throat> okay. Doesn't it seem like James is saying, look, life is short, life is uncertain, so don't make any big plans without first saying, if the Lord wills. And, and we might take that to mean like there's some sort of special formula. There's like a spiritual phrase 
that we're meant to say, don't do anything without first saying, Lord willing, Lord willing, I'll see you next week. Lord willing, we'll do this or that, right? And, and we turn that into like a little formula, like a magic trick. Um, that's not what James is saying. The, the phrase, if the Lord wills, is not some sort of magic formula. That's not the point at all. What James is saying right here is this. It is arrogant and evil for me to try and live as if God is not ultimate. If I try to live as if God is not truly ultimate, then I have become an arrogant and an evil person because I'm assuming that I'm in control of my own life, that I'm in control of the world, and I'm in control of the future. That's an assumption here that James is battling against. And so, I, I, if I say, if the Lord wills, that's not just a spiritual posture that I'm, I'm quoting the right formula to make sure God blesses my pursuits. No, it's a posture of humility that truly believes that God is on the throne. That's what James is commanding of us here. When we say, if the Lord wills, I will live and I will do this or that. that what he's commanding is a true heart disposition that believes that I can't do anything at all unless God wills it so. My heart will not beat once more unless the Lord wills it so. I will not draw another breath. I will not wake up tomorrow morning unless God wills it so. And so only if God wills can I do anything. Therefore, James says, all of my plans, all of my life come up under his sovereignty, his power, his glory. It's an entirely different way of viewing the world. And so James, in a sense, is helping us practically apply what we see in Colossians 1, isn't he? That this is an attitude that takes over how we live, how we do business, what plans we make for the future. Only if God wills will it come to pass. And so if, if we exist because of Jesus, if we exist for Jesus, if our eternal future is secure in Jesus, nothing else gets ultimate priority in our lives. There's just no room for it. There's no room for it. He is ultimate. He is absolute. And so we should treat Jesus uh, like the planets to the sun. He is fixed. He doesn't move. He is the most glorious, brightest, most wonderful thing there is, and everything else just orbits around him, right? That's how life is meant to work. That's the order for which he created us, to know him and to build our lives around him so that all the good things of life, be it diet, exercise, career, relationship, you fill in the blank. Many, many good things, potentially, but all of them have their proper place, orbiting around the sun, around Christ. That's what it is to follow him, to know him. It's not just to do our best to follow the rules, it's to build a life around the one who is supreme, who is ultimate. Now, at this point, a modern person might come along and say, you know, it's not good for one person to have all that power. It's not good for one person to have all that power, even if that person is God. If it's true that God is this really this truly this powerful and this absolute and this ultimate, then you know what ultimate power, absolute power does? It corrupts. And even if it's God, he's going to abuse that power and he's not going to bless us and honor us. He's going to crush us. Now, you know what? There are a lot of people who believe that. And I call that a modern belief because the truth is that for us in our present time, we are more 
skeptical and cynical about power and authority than we've ever been. You, you can go back and look at the research just in terms of a, a standard of, of trust in the president and in the government. 50, 60, 70 years ago, it is mind-blowing to think of how low those numbers are compared to what they were, right? We are cynical when it comes to power. Nobody in this room, you'd never blindly follow an authority figure because the assumption for so many of us is no matter how good he or she appears, there are skeletons in the closet. And the more power we give that person, the more they're going to abuse that power. And of course, a lot of people see God that way. So here's, here's a question. And I don't know if you ever think about this, but it's, it's a valid question. If God really is this absolute, this ultimate, this powerful, how do, not, how do I know that I can trust him, that he will care for me? How do I know that I can trust him not to crush me with all that power? Uh, there's, a, there's a very flat religious answer to that question that says, well, he's God, he's ultimate, and he created you, so you owe him everything, and it doesn't matter what he does. He's God, he can do whatever he wants. All right? that's, that's a very flat answer, and there's truth in that. God can do whatever he wants to do. He's God. But you know, that's not the answer the Bible gives us. Not the flat, pat answer. The answer we actually comes in verse 19. How do we know we can trust a God this powerful, that he's actually for us? Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure. There's nothing mechanical about any of this. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Um, it, it gives God endless delight to put Jesus on display for us. Do you know that? Jesus, who is God in every way, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Anything you want to know about God in his essential nature, we simply look to Jesus. In, in him, all the fullness dwells. And then through Jesus, Paul says, God reconciles all things to himself, meaning all of God's good purposes, all of God's plans for his creation are fulfilled in Jesus, in their totality. There's nothing else left undone. There are no loose ends untied that somehow God's got to come back around on because in Jesus Christ, every good purpose is fulfilled and is promised to be fulfilled. We, you and me, we are reconciled to God through Jesus. Which means, and we'll see a lot of this next week, God has taken his sinful enemies and through Jesus Christ, he has made us his children. God has adopted us into his family We've been reconciled through Christ. And y'all, in a very real way, the whole universe shares in this grace and promise. Uh, sometime this week, for fun, I want you to read Romans chapter 8, okay? Um, maybe, the, maybe the densest, in a, in a good way, the most wonderful chapter in the Bible, if there is such a thing, Romans 8. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, he speaks about the creation, the whole creation, he says the creation itself groans because the creation has been enslaved to corruption because of human sin. And yet the creation itself will one day be reconciled to God in glory through Jesus. The creation itself is waiting on the return of Christ just as we are. 
Because then there's a reconciliation, a renewal, a restoration that will take place where God will fulfill all his good purposes through Christ. All because Jesus, uh, Paul says, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. That word peace literally means that we've been bound up together with God. Have you ever tried to unstring Christmas lights? <laughs> you just throw them away, right? I mean, just buy some new ones. If you've ever tried to unstring something or undo a slinky when the slinky gets all tangled up in itself, it's not even worth trying, right? It's all bound up together, right? Well, that's, that's a negative thing. This is not. This is a good thing. We have been, we've, been, we've, we've been given peace with God. We've been bound up with God together forever. There's no untangling us. We are his and he is ours. Jesus has done it through his death. Now, here's my point. How, how do we know that this ultimate powerful God wouldn't abuse that power? How do we know he really cares about us, right? Look at the cross, Paul says. Look to the cross. On the cross, what happened on the cross? On the cross, God was abused for us. God committed no abuse. Peter even says that there was no abuse found in his mouth. Though being reviled, he did not revile in return. That while being mocked, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. On the cross, God was abused for us. What kind of God would do that? Every other religious system looks at what we believe and scoffs at us. No God would humiliate himself like that. No God would subject himself to that. But don't you see the glory in this? That in Christ we come to know a God who is ultimate in power, yes, but he's also ultimate in mercy. And we know it through the cross. We find a God who is ultimate in glory, but also in grace. And we see it at the cross. The God who was willing to send his own son to suffer for you, not as an abuse of power, but as the fullest expression of it. Jesus says, I have the power, the authority, to subject all things to myself. And then he went and had his hands and feet nailed down. The expression of his power, most clearly seen through the shedding of his blood, to save us. And so, y'all, here in Colossians 1, Paul reintroduces Jesus to us. Maybe a side of Jesus that we don't know, that we've never known, or that we've taken for granted. And I hope today that as we've looked at this, I hope it has felt overwhelming to you. Every time I come to Colossians 1, I'm just, I'm floored. I, 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 if God gives me 60 more years on this earth, I'll never reach the bottom of what we read today, and you won't either. I'm not sure in heaven we'll ever reach the bottom of it. I don't know. This is so rich and deep and wonderful. Because, y'all, when it comes to Jesus, I, I said this to the kids, I hope you heard it, the more you get to know him, the bigger he appears. We, you don't, I heard this this week, I loved it. You don't get to know Jesus under a microscope. Under a microscope, you take something very, very small and you make it bigger. No. We get to know Jesus like through a telescope where you take something massive and you bring it in close. Jesus is the ultimate, eternal creator, sustainer, and savior. He is head of the church. 
In him all things hold together. And yet he has delighted to make himself known. And the closer we get to him, the bigger he's going to appear. He doesn't change, but we do. We can. There is no exhausting the limits of who he is and what he's done, but we get to try. We get to try. And so my hope for us today, my hope for us as we walk through our 40 days of prayer, my hope for us as we walk through Colossians, and you're coming and going, and you're eating dinner at the, at the table with your family, and whatever you're doing, we have always in front of us opportunity to look to the, to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, as God, as ultimate, to worship him and glorify him and come to know him more. Each day we can know him, worship him, glorify him. And the closer we get, the bigger he'll appear. That is the wonderful blessing of the Christian life that you can know more of Jesus tomorrow than you do today and more today than you did yesterday. Right? We'll never exhaust him. We'll never get to the end. What a blessing. So let's do what, what the scripture calls us to do. That if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. And let's pray that this Jesus, the fullness of who he is, might come into clearer picture for you and me today. Father, we ask this morning, uh, we ask, from a, I hope, from a place of, of just absolute awe and, and, and a sense of being overwhelmed. What we often, what I often make Jesus out to be is so much smaller than he truly is. I, I, I want to make him manageable. And I pray, Lord, that today, in my own heart, in our hearts, we would, we would drop that, um, that sense of, of, uh, what, of pride, of what it comes down to, that I, 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 I want to be bigger than I really am. And that means making Jesus smaller, perhaps. Lord, I pray that you would give us the kind of heart that says, we'll, we will decrease, as John the Baptist said, that he might increase. We'll draw nearer to him and find him to be more glorious than we ever imagined. Lord, make that our hearts today. We can't box him in. We can't make him anything more than what he already is. We can simply draw near, draw near, draw near. So Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father, for these scriptures. The scripture like Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1, Philippians 2, Romans 8, where we just get this massive picture. Too much to take in. Thank you, Lord, that we have this um, so that we can order our lives around him so that we can put everything in perspective around him. Um, Lord, where we, where we are um, burdened today, suffering, struggling, anxious, fearful today, I do pray that this would be an encouragement to us that the all-powerful God of the whole universe holds everything together and delights, that you delight to call us uh, your children, our Father. What a comfort. And Lord, I pray also that it's a, it's a, it's a new ambition for us too, that, um, that we would say to ourselves, I'm not content to know Jesus at this level at this intensity i want to know him more than i do today i want to i want to dig deeper down into this this wonderful truth of who he is and and what he's done and father uh give us the grace to do that um, give us the grace to do it 
Lord, thank you that in your great power you never abuse us. You do good to us all, all of our days. And Lord, what awaits us is, is immeasurably even greater. Thank you, Lord, that we have a Savior who would love us this much. And we pray all things in his mighty name. Amen.